Welcome to the Truth of the Matter Is podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, alongside with Jonathan, and this is episode number 91. Speaking on behalf of myself and Jonathan, of course, as well, we want to let you know we appreciate you for listening in today. Yeah, before we begin, let's give a round of applause to all who have decided to join us today. We thank you and hope that you continue to press play at your own convenience. Yes, how you doing, Daniel? How's everything? Everything's going well. I can't complain. Nice late night podcast, nothing to complain about. How was your day? It's been adventurous, but you know, taking it one day at a time. And I'm kind of sad. No more more football. That's over now. Sort of lean into other things, but... And I'm looking forward to next season. So, for those of you guys who don't know, Jonathan usually has a a month after football season ends where he doesn't leave the house, he doesn't shower, he doesn't. I don't do know anything. about all that. Lays on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Hygiene is very important. So I, I don't know why you putting that information on the airway. Nah, it's not true. I was just messing around, but um. Yeah, I mean, once football season ends, it's, it's tough. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough time for him, you know? Yeah. I mean, Barely it's tough talks. when your team doesn't get in. Right? But now you... You know, just, I can't relate. I know you can't. You, you guys made it. <laughs> you had a, and we had better, we had a better team. We, we still... Uh, well, looking forward to next season, man. I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have today. You know, I've been enjoying, you know, looking at one particular verse, just seeing how deep the rabbit hole goes. You know, I, you know, I've always read more than one verse and chapter here, but sometimes, I mean, well, for someone like me, there's so many avenues you can go down just looking at one verse. And, you know, this is part five, then, of where we are. So, of course, before we begin, let's pray first and foremost, unless there's something else you want to add, Daniel. No, no. All right, let's get started. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we glorify you today. We love you, we honor you, and we thank you. Lord, I pray for protection of everyone who hears the sound of my voice. I pray for friends, acquaintances, enemies, loved ones who haven't tuned into us and don't know anything about myself and Daniel and yet are going about their day looking to be successful and of course accomplish something meaningful to their life. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness, your grace today, for your guidance to unpack what your mercy looks like. Lord, if there is one thing that I am a beneficiary of is your mercy because you keep giving it to me in so many ways that I'm aware of and unaware of, to be frank. Lord, educate us today with your word. Feed us spiritually, for we know that we can't live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from your mouth should suffice. Lord, we say these things with surety and confidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Yeah, so we're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right into it. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And we're going to look at this in the English standard. Damn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So in order to understand the beatitude better for verse 7, we're going to take a closer look at the word mercy. Now, as a reminder for those who don't know this, portions of our Bible are written in Aramaic and Hebrew and are translated into Greek and Latin. That's how we got it in English. Which means every word and its intent in English language would not be honored in its truest form and meaning when it comes to studying and reading God's word. The important thing is we must read to understand the basic message of the gospel. Today, for those who are you know, a bit curious and want to dive deep, I will suggest a blueprint. When it comes to diving deep, we need to be detectives in order to see the whole picture. The English language only shows us basic understanding, which is absolutely okay. But if you're looking to learn more, to be proactive with your faith, this is necessarily something that's important to do. I hope everyone is following me here so far. So on the Truth of the Matters podcast, right, our goal is to equip you to have you think critically about God's word, about the world in which we live in, its surroundings, and about your actions that impact your choices. Remember, we live our lives on levels and we arrive in stages. The quality of your thinking can determine the quality of how you choose to live your life. As believers and followers of Christ, never forget this because it's very important. So let's get started. Let's define mercy from a secular point of view. Daniel. Mercy is the compassionate treatment of those in distress, especially when it's is within one's power to punish or harm them. Okay, very good. So let's break down the word mercy even more and its common usage in society today. So mercy speaks from a guilty point of view as well as an innocent one. And I'll repeat that. Mercy speaks from a guilty point of view as well as an innocent one. So in the legal sense today, we have what is known as a courthouse. You have a lawyer, you have a judge, a prosecutor, and a defendant, sometimes a jury. And based upon the secular definition, a judge can actually show partiality. He or she can be compassionate and apply leniency or mercy during sentencing, of course, within reason. Other times, the judge can be indifferent, heartless, and use their power unjustly. And the cause for such behavior may be because of prejudice, bias towards a person or even a side. Now, there's no way of knowing with certainty if a judge is incompetent. Now, the only person who would know this is God. So let's go to God's word for support. Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 23 through 24 in the NLT. 
because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew that what in each person's heart. Yeah, so he knew what was in each person's heart. Right? What a verse. Another thing we can get from this is that you can't fool God with anything. You will be foolish to think so. Now let's get back to the example I was given about judges. The key of remembrance here is people in positions of power can be persuaded to act in inhumane. And let's go to the scripture for an example of that. So let's revisit the Gospel of Luke. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that we've covered the Gospel of Luke series. But it's always important to revisit things and see it from a much more larger point of view. So let's go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8 in the NLT. Daniel? One day... Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Great job. So the first takeaway from this passage is that God is on the throne. And as a result, no matter what is going on in the world, he's in charge. No matter who is the president, remember, God has the final say. No matter what your situation looks like, God can change it. On this podcast, we have mentioned this before, and I believe it's worth mentioning it once more. So our dad's favorite movie is Lord of the Great Debaters. And I don't know about Daniel, but I think you should check it out one day if you haven't. And there's a dialogue or a quote from the movie. And this very much applies here. And this is what it says. It says, who's the judge? And the response is, the judge is God. Why is he the judge? And the response is, because he decides who wins or loses, not my opponent. Who is your opponent? And the response is, he doesn't exist. And why doesn't he exist? Because he is merely descending voice of truth that I speak. The point is, when you are in relationship with God, you belong to him. You are his child, and therefore he decides the outcome. Now, that outcome may not be something you like, but in the end, you have to believe that it will benefit you. 
when you declare Jesus as having lordship over your life, you have agreed to let him lead as you follow. Remember, he is your shepherd and you are the sheep. And what do sheep do? They follow. They don't trust the hired hand, but they recognize the voice of the shepherd. Here are some verses to support and encourage before we move forward. Let's start with Psalms 37, verse 23 through 24. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall. For the Lord holds them by the hand. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9 we can make our plans but the lord determines our steps proverbs 19 verse 21 many are the plans in a person's heart but it is the lord's purpose that prevails isaiah 48 verse 17 and i love this in the message bible I am God, your God, who teaches you how to live right and well. I show you what to do, where to go. Psalms 31, 14 to 15. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. And lastly, you heard this before. And I'll say once more, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to them who accord according to his purpose. Let's go back to the parable of Luke. Even though the judge is unjust, he rendered a just decision in the end. Now what you see is we see the power of prayer in effect. We see God leveling the praying field. This is one of the powerful reasons we pray, right? There are situations and predicaments out of our control. We understand that we are in a world that's full of chaos, that's full of different things that can persuade us to sin. And therefore, we understand that leaning on God in our place of weakness can help elevate us and that's what prayer does it elevates our minds and elevates the will and just like i've mentioned numerous times the most important thing as believers is that when you need help there's nothing wrong with asking for help don't stay prideful in the way that you feel about something and never get the help that you need okay and for the sake of time, we won't go into specific chapter and verse, but I'll just mention a few verses that come to mind where God steps in and impacts the outcome. But before I do, I'll tell you another thing. Don't be mistaken. Don't be mistaken, right? God will have his way, and sometimes the movement doesn't have to be identified and noticeable. Like the examples I am getting ready to provide. Sometimes God moves so subtly. You'll never know. 
that he had an impact on the decision that someone made or the choice they made. Here, it was the annoyance of a woman that did it. It was her desire to seek justice. When it came to justice happening, it was at the expense of her annoying him that he was so unjust. Being annoyed was all it took for the solution to be or to happen. Right? So keep that in mind. So examples of God's movement would be the hardened of Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. And I encourage you to go check out these things. The story and judges with Gideon and the impact of the army and the numbers decreasing for the sake of the soldiers not believing that they did at their own will, but knowing that because their numbers were limited, that God had a hand in their success. The Book of Kings with the assembly of the divine council is, you know, an angel coming forth to bring about a lying spirit at the Lord's request. The adding of 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Interesting one. And I can go on and on and on. But another takeaway before we move on is God should never be compared to man or woman. There's a difference. Don't ever make the mistake of comparing God to a man or woman. Because God is full of justice, grace, and mercy, and truth. And humans fail in those departments continuously. Right? We make bad judgments and decisions because we're not perfect. And therefore, we believe that the only perfect being to walk this earth is Jesus. So we place our faith in him because we believe he knows all things. Remember, one of the ways we can gauge God's characteristics is the omnis. And the one we care about for this point of reference is omniscient, which means God knows everything, right? Nothing ever occurs to God because he knows the past, the present, and the future. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper now. The word mercy derives from the medieval Latin word mercel or mercellus, which means price paid or wages paid. So let's think deeply about this for a second. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the word mercy translates actually to a verb, Hannah, and I'll spell it H-A-N-A-N, which means to be gracious and show favor. The root gives us the name Hannah, H-A-N-A-N. N-N-A-H and John or Jonah, J-O-H-A-N-N, meaning Joe, short for Yahweh, who is gracious. Now, for those who don't know, Yahweh is another name for God. So the biblical definition of mercy relates to forgiveness or withholding of punishment. The biblical definition of mercy relates to forgiveness or withholding of punishment. Now, how does this relate to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you might ask? Well, God's mercy and graciousness shows up when he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins once and for all, as he became our high priest forever. So the punishment 
of a physical cross like Jesus, we would not have to bear. As believers, we will have a cross, however, because we bear Jesus' name. So hard times, tribulations, trials, persecution in certain areas of the world, that's still to come. Just not in the form of what we saw Jesus go through. Okay? We do have a cross to bear, right? Shall Jesus carry the cross alone? No. You know, being a follower of Christ, a Christian, won't be sunshines and rainbows. Okay? I don't know potentially where you've heard this, but that's not how it's going to be. Besides, Jesus warns us in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. What does he tell us, Daniel? I have told you these things so that in me you may have perfect peace. In the world you have tribulations and distress and suffering but be courageous be confident be undaunted be filled with joy i have overcome the world my conquest is accomplished my victory abiding yeah so let's be clear about this if you accepted jesus christ as your lord and savior Okay, then you're not dying in your sins. Now, dying in your sins is an option, but through Christ, you are covered, you are cured from sin. That sin is no longer something that would keep you and that would lead you to death because you recognize and understand. That is something that you have to come out of. The sin condition isn't something that will ail you because Christ is the antidote. Jesus conquers sin, which is why he declares himself that he's the way, the truth, and the life. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he took our place, each and every one of us. But again, that's if we accept him. If we don't, in the book of James, it says you will die in your sin. So, when First John says, chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he, who is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's part of his mercy. And him being merciful to each and every one of us. So I want to talk about two texts and I want to look at it and I want to support what I said earlier when I said mercy speaks from a guilty point of view and an innocent one. So let's look at the gospel of Matthew. I know we haven't gotten to this point yet, but I think it's relevant in how we unpack this one verse that we have in Matthew chapter five or seven. So we're going to look at the gospel of Matthew chapter nine. We're going to look at Verses 9 through 13 in the New King James Version. And we're doing this for context, okay? Daniel. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened. As Jesus sat at the table in the house, 
that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right, great job. So in this portion of scripture, we see Jesus associating himself among those who are in need of help, his help. He calls them friends, and he also diagnoses to them that they're sick and in need of a doctor, to which he is willingly, willingly wanting to be that for them. Now we go to Matthew chapter 12, and really verses 1 through 8, also in the New King James Version, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain into eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are not doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests the priest, in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So here Jesus is defending those who are innocent. In a situation like this, Jesus would be considered a lawyer who was willingly defending his client. So two different scenarios, and yet Jesus has chosen to apply the same verse. I ask myself why. So I went to the book and scripture that Jesus was quoting just like we did the following week when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus also quoted from Deuteronomy 8, 3. So there's this consistency that what Jesus is doing is he's using scripture that was written before in the Torah to validate and fulfill, right? Jesus at one point said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And part of fulfilling it is requoting statements that were made and written to acknowledge him, but also for him to bring it alive. Very powerful here. So when you go to the book in scripture that Jesus is quoting, it's the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. But of course, for context, we will start at verse 1. And we're going to look at this in the NLT. Daniel? Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he will restore us 
so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. O Israel and Judea, what should I do with you? Ask the Lord, for your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know more than I want burnt offerings. Great job. So that Jesus be... is a poet, ain't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, at the time, this is beautifully written by Hosea. So let me sum this up for you. The nation of Israel started to drift away from God. They broke the first covenant where they promised that they would serve Yahweh only. The people kept up the real chosen sacrifices and outward things to other gods and practices from other religions. What's funny is every now and then they turn back to the Lord and they would say the right things and do the right things. But guess what? It never lasted. What does that sound like? The battle most of us face with sin in Romans 7. Right, for I have the desire to do what is good, but cannot carry it out. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living me that does it. So the Lord says to his people in Hosea chapter 6, Your love is like a morning cloud. Like to do that goes early away. And something that James mentioned is he talks about like a mist that is there and then vanishes. So this behavior to do what was right wasn't sustainable. And that's the beautiful thing about understanding that what Paul tells us in Romans is that the law was there. Might be in Galatians 2. Might be Galatians. Yeah. That the law was there so that we can recognize and be conscious of our sin. We needed to understand that it was something that we struggled with. And therefore, all that the Lord does is it brings you more to understand and acknowledge how powerful and important Jesus is to the struggle that we have and the reason why he came to correct it and why he's the antidote, right? So very interesting here. So understand, God knows that people are weak and aren't very good at repentance, right? And that means to turn away, and that also means to ask for forgiveness. But what Jesus says is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? He doesn't desire to demand a sacrifice of atonement from you, right? That's under the first covenant, and we saw how that went, the slaughtering of animals every year. The priests going and dealing with that every single year. God does not desire to extract from us sacrifices for our sin and promises that we'll do better. That's why in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25, it is clear. It is a trap to dedicate something rationally to only consider one's vow. 
And that's one of the things that I mentioned when we were having a discussion about the New Year's revolution. That's man's attempt and desire to convince himself that he can change. And, you know, I've been having numerous conversations with people that believe that this desire to heal thyself, this desire to do what's capably needed to be done resides within as if they are, aren't paying attention that you yourself are broken and need help and assistance. How is a broken person able to all of a sudden heal themselves? I'm not sure I follow that logic, but that's something that I've heard continuously and I kind of ponder at it. I'm not so sure. But when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, it's the deepest response you can have from God who is empathetic of your struggles and knows it takes a while to break those bad habits. But he's patient with you, right? Every time sin increases, so does grace. I think the formula for that is brilliant, right? And if there's anything we know about God, he's a God of process. And therefore, he understands that you have a long period of time to forgive, right? That's why he says, someone offends you and you forgive them forgive them seven times over right there's an understanding that that grace and mercy is needed and what makes god so full of justice is he understands and he has the empathy of what you're going through in your personal life so much more that he understands the amount of mercy that you need for you to not only forgive yourself but to know that you can move forward not standing condemned right so let's dive in even deeper right mercy in hebrew means renam and it's r-e-h-a-m-i-m in a pure in the pearl in the plural meaning it means womb now this gets deep because womb and its connection to mercy is the womb of emotion and it really speaks to a mother's instinctly feeling for a child in her womb, right? And we, we don't have the time to unpack that, but a mother's emotion for a soon-to-be-born child means a lot to them. And the amount of attention and the carefulness that they have, it's the same desire and strategicness that God has with each and every one of us, right? He in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he saw us in our mother's womb, right? So when it talks about being merciful and speaking in regards to the question of if a child, if it is a child, if it's not a child, God sees that life before it ever is born. And that dedication, that seriousness, that commitment, that love, that design that God has for that life to grow up and be successful and to potentially represent him, he foreknew that, right? And I don't want to get into the deeper, profound meaning of that. But what I want to do is I want to talk about mercy in the Greek, which is elos, E-L-E-O-S, which is derived from the word olive oil. Now, olive oil throughout ancient history was used to treat wounds. It was a soothing, comfortable, 
comfortable comfortabling and healing process. Now this actually speaks then to a merciful God who is all those things. Now you might say, how so? Well, soothing is having a gentle, common effect, right? So let's go to the Gospel of Luke, because we're going to look at scripture to support this. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. Daniel. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. So they set out. But as they were sailing, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind swept down as it threw a wind tunnel on the lake. And they began to be swamped and were in great danger. They came to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are about to die. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging, violent waves. And they ceased. And it became calm, a perfect peacefulness. And he said to them, Where is your faith, your confidence in me? They were afraid and astonished, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the sea? And they obeyed him. Yes, yeah, so that's stupid. And how is Jesus comforting? Well, we did an episode called The Humanity and compassion of Jesus Christ, episode 72. Shameless plug, but it's important. And we unpacked Luke chapter 23, verse 26 through 31 in more depth. But today we're just going to briefly mention it because it's worth mentioning. And we're looking at this in the NLT as a reminder. Daniel? As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind him, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So remember, in Jesus' own pain and agony, he took it upon himself to warn the women who wept for him. And he told them to pray for one another because hard times are coming. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44, and Luke chapter 21, verse 23 through 24, Jesus already wept for the people of Jerusalem since he foresaw the future destruction of the city by the Romans in 70 AD. Describing the fall of Jerusalem, Jesus said, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nourishing infants in those days. For there will be a great distress on the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among all the nations. And healing. We spoke about that in Luke. But for the sake of time, here are a list of healings in Luke. You want to go back and read them in your personal time. Right. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 12 to 14, Jesus heals 
the men of leprosy. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26, it was the healing of the paralyzed man. In Luke chapter 6, verse 6 to 11, the healing that took place on the Sabbath. And Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, the surgeon servant was healed. So we've done a lot today. We have explored mercy as a gift from God. And through that gift, we can experience his mercy and his sacrifice as he paid for our sins in full. We explored God's merciful love and how he can be soothing, comforting, and healing. And we see that scripture and the example I gave now, we need to learn something else. How do we apply that in our personal situation? Yes, Jesus can calm a storm, but the question is, have you allowed him to calm any storms in your life? To bring a sense of peace to your mind and thoughts. Have you thought about that? Has God shows up to comfort you in your time of need? Have you allowed him? How about healings? Has God healed people around you? Have you been healed from certain things? I suggest you need to reflect and explore God's mercy in your own life. And maybe you might find out that he's done a lot more than you realize, not just for you, but for your loved ones, your friends, and also take consideration believers all around the world. So as we conclude Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, which says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As believers, we need to work on being more Christ-like and extending mercy to one another. You know, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, verse 40, in the NLT, it tells us that Students are not greater than their teacher but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. So as believers, we are called to be set apart. Therefore, I know that it's not the popular opinion in the world that we live in, but showing mercy to others. We give thanks to God for the mercy that he has shown ourselves. I said it again. By showing mercy to others, we give thanks to God for the mercy that has been shown to us. When we give mercy to others, we reflect the heart of Jesus our Lord, who was full of forgiveness and kindness. The truth of the matter is, we need mercy and misery of sin as we strive to get things right. I want to make sure I say that again. The truth of the matter is, we need mercy and the misery of sin as we strive to try to get things right. The benefit of God's mercy includes peace, love, and joy. Let's try to be intentional. And that's what I have to say. Is there anything you want to add, Mr. Daniel, before we go to devotional time? No, I think you covered everything. Okay, then devotional time it is. Psalms 85 verse 10 says, Steadfast love and truth and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. God will always show himself to be faithful, even when so many things are going, around, going wrong around us. 
God never fails those who have placed their trust in him. Remember that steadfast love and faithfulness meet in God. God's righteousness, his character, his goodness, his justice, his reliability to all of his promises and his mercy are available. So don't pass it up. And remember this prayer for the week that we say to the Lord. And we will say together, Lord, help me to see the forest from the trees. Work on me as I try to be much more merciful as you have been to me. And in Jesus' name we pray. And in all in agreement, say amen. Amen.